Hello and welcome to the High Performance Property Investment Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Field. Property investor for almost 20 years, former owner and publisher of Australian Property Investor Magazine and founder of White House Advisory. Today we are joined by Bernard Salt. He is the Managing Director of the Demographics Group and a weekly columnist for The Australian, widely regarded as one of Australia's leading social commentators by business, the media, well, the broader community. The Age has described his style as part stand-up comedian, part number-crunching economist. Bernard is responsible for popularising the following phrases which have now well and truly entered into the Australian dialect. Smashed avocado, sea change, tree change, among many others. Bernard, thank you. It is our absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks very much, uh, Jacob, for the introduction. Always always a pleasure to chat. It is, absolutely. And look, let's dive right in if that's okay. As a futurist, Bernard, you've recently mentioned that I have a fascination with the future of Australia, and you've had that for much of your career. Can you describe for our audience this area of expertise? What is a, a futurist? And why this fascination with little old Australia? Well, I have a fascination with little old Australia because I'm a <laughs> proud and passionate uh, Australian. Um, I have, um, I, I suppose my my um, academic background was in history, the history, the evolution of Australia, the evolution of Australian cities, um, and uh, from a social, cultural, demographic uh, point of view, to the extent that I will try and place events in their historic mm. Um, sequence when I see something on television or whatever. Uh, mm. And when you take that long-term perspective of Australia, you know, from European settlement uh, or of Tasmania or any other state for that matter, uh, then it prompts the question, oh, well, you can see the evolution of uh, Australian society, of Victorian society or whatever it is. Um, and it prompts the question, well, okay, that's that's that that's the journey up to 2022. What do the 2020s hold? If you were standing in 2030 and looking back, what would be the perspective? And I find that an endlessly fascinating concept. Uh, Imagine, for example, if you could have uh, stood at 2020 and reviewed what the previous decade was uh, was going what was going to happen over that previous decade and inform people in 2010 uh, that there was going to be a uh, mining boom there was going to be a collapse there was going to be an acceleration of overseas students and around 2020 there was going to be a uh, a global pandemic that would shut mm. everything down for two years you know it's mm. quite an extraordinary uh, 12 year period so what is it that we are likely to see in the uh, in the 2020s and I suppose the reason why people don't do it is because, well, we don't, to some extent, we don't know. But I argue that there are pointers, that there are indicators mm. that would suggest that there are a number of factors that we see, will see unfold in the, uh, in the 2020s in the post COVID world. And certainly business and government is, uh, is very interested in those perspectives, partly because not many other people are putting much that sort of stuff out there. Yeah. And, and I feel you've traditionally been. You're right on the money. And I, I think some of the trends that you've identified as they are happening, you know, it's not in retrospect as they're happening have been, you know, you know, truly insightful. And 
I think Australia is a funny country and it's hard to think of other examples where we are such a melting pot. We don't have this hundred years of culture or thousands of years of culture. We're sort of making it up as we go is the feeling or the feeling that I get. Well, well, that is very much the case. If you look at um, Australia's demographic mix, around about 30% of the Australian population or resident mm. population was born outside the Australian continent. Uh, that proportion for the US, mm. the great melting pot, is barely 15%. For wow. the UK, it is 14%. For Germany, it is 13%. For Japan, it is 2%. And for China, it is 1%. We are literally one of the most, if not the most, multicultural fusion cultures on the planet. We're continually evolving and changing. We are very unpredictable in that regard. And it makes it an ideal uh, petri dish to, uh, to, to examine uh, social change uh, in Australia, 25, 26 million people scattered across the Australian continent, continually churning and changing to a mm. degree that no other nation does. If ever there was a role for a professional demographer in the commercial sense, uh, it would be on the Australian continent because it's such, uh, it's such a churning, changing uh, environment and one that I find endlessly fascinating, I'll say. That's wonderful. And I feel from a, I'm taking a, a property investment lens, I, I guess that's the direction that I've come from professionally. And uh, change creates opportunity, you know, it creates upside, it creates downside. So, you know, where there is this change and, you know, larger, you know, volatility or, or you know, degrees of change, then there is always opportunity. And, and that's what I'd love to probably unpack with you today, Bernard, in, in terms of where that opportunity might lie. Uh, with, a, with a particular lens for property investors? Well, look, there's a number of um, events that have occurred over the last two years that I think will uh, continue to shape the balance of the 2020s, and particularly from a property point of view. Um, mm. one, of the, um, one of the key issues, of course, is the, is the whole uh, concept of working from home. I have been tracking this through the censuses for 25 years, 5% of the Australian workforce worked from home in 1996, and that proportion wow. did not change for 25 years. Along comes the pandemic, and it shoots up to 45 or 50%. I don't yeah. think in the post-COVID world it'll go back to 5%. I think it'll settle to something like 15%. That mm. is a 10 percentage point shift in the proportion of people who are prepared to or want to work from home. That's 1.3 million workers. And it raises a very interesting point. If you are now working from home, then you kind of can't manage a family uh, in an inner city chic minimalist apartment. You kind of need three or four bedrooms. You need a Zoom room. Uh, you need two <laughs> bathrooms. You need front yard, backyard, the whole shebang. So the demands for property shift. And also, if you are working from home and you only need to go into the office, you know, maybe once a week or once a fortnight or once a month or something like that, well, then you can move beyond the edge of the metropolitan area yeah. to the lifestyle zones around all our capital cities, sea change and tree, tree change. And we saw this with the exodus from Melbourne. Melbourne lost 60,000 residents yeah. in the uh, year ending June 2021. It normally adds 110,000. It lost 60,000. Wow. And when you look at the maps, you can see there's this like Goldilocks zone up to about 150 kilometres uh, from the CBD, you know, places like the Ballerine Peninsula, the Mornington Peninsula, of course, yes. Mitchell Shire to the north, Borbore Shire to the southeast, uh, and parts of Geelong, as well as the goldfields like Dalesford and Creswick and Ballarat and so forth. Absolutely. The whole range of lifestyle zones. 
And it goes to my core observation about Australian motives and consumer behaviour. We are a lifestyle-driven people. It is evident in our relentless pursuit of suburbia initially. It was evident in our relentless pursuit of inner-city apartment, that sort of Manhattan-esque lifestyle. We've now shifted our priorities, and we're now looking for outer suburbia and lifestyle zones beyond the edge of the metropolitan area. And I think that's where property demand uh, will be greatest, say, over the next three to five years or more. It's really interesting, isn't it? And when you sort of touched on that, and I haven't heard the expression, you know, the Manhattan-esque appeal, that's an ambition thing. Because, you know, even a few years ago, there was the ambition that you're moving to the new Docklands apartment. And suddenly, I guess that ambition has shifted. Um, well, well, yes, look, it, it shifted, I suppose, um, you know, the, living in the inner city, and it still, you know, offers a great lifestyle, and there's many people who will want that, it suits their needs and so forth. Yes. Um, but if all of a sudden the the nexus between where you live and where you work is altered because, yeah. you know, half the office is working from home and there's no point being in Collins Street or in George Street or wherever it is in Sydney and so forth, uh, then then an, another set of values drive Australian behaviour. You know what? I don't need to be here. Uh, I want a sea view. I want the green scene. I want yeah. a cute little <laughs> village. I want to be feel part of the community. I only want to come up to town once a month. And that opens yeah. up a whole yeah. range. Imagine what I can get for my money if I move to regional Victoria, regional New South Wales, or regional Queensland within striking distance of a capital city. Give an Australian half a chance and they'll take the lifestyle option every time. That, yeah. that is, is a recurring theme. Even the pursuit of suburbia in the post-war era by the returning diggers, that was driven by their concept of what comprised a wonderful lifestyle, three-bedroom brick veneer on a quarter-acre block, driving to work or whatever. They thought that was wonderful. Well, we have gone through a number of iterations, and the latest iteration affected by the pandemic is actually to to push it out to to these um, lifestyle zones beyond the edge of the metropolitan area. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And, and well, when you're talking about, you, you think when the dust has settled, and this is obviously in the future, which you're an expert at, at, at looking towards. So you're, you're saying it's going from 5% uh, working from home to around 15% when the dust has settled. We're talking, still talking about 10% you know, of the workforce not reliant on trains, not reliant on that infrastructure, not reliant on cafes in the inner CBD or the restaurants. And, you know, that's a dramatic change. One in 10 people that evaporates from that commuter, uh, you know, I guess, hub. Um, How does that change then? You know, are they still going out? And and is it changing the communities in these suburbs? Because at the moment, suburbs on the outer, uh, you know, parts of the city are, look, I'm just going to go home and shut the door and and, you know, spend time with a family. But if people are living and working, I like to go and catch up with friends and, uh, you know, the friends might be on the other end of the city. It's- well, well, yes, in fact, um, when you, when you uh, increase the dwell time in the suburban home, uh, yes. it's almost like putting a defibrillator uh, on the suburbs. They just jump into life. Yeah. I mean, the great criticism of Australian suburbia was that it was comprised of dormitory suburbs. The, the people only were there at night, you know, they are out yes. uh, throughout yeah. the day. Well, if you're spending 24-7 uh, in the burbs because you're doing a Zoom course <laughs> at the moment, uh, yes. then it activates suburbia. So local bike paths are used, local cafes, local office supply shops, uh, local um, um, 
consultants around technology. You know, look at all the technology I've had to learn in order to conduct this uh, Zoom call, the camera and the microphone and the lights and so forth. So you need to get people there. So all of those consulting jobs and all those service jobs from the CBD need to be replicated out in the burbs. I don't also buy into the logic that, well, the CBD is going to die because you're taking Mm. 10% of the jobs out of the CBD and putting in the suburbs. Yes, that's true. However, Mm. if you look at at the growth, in office kind of work, you know, lawyers, accountants, consultants, you know, all that sort of thing. The ABS is very good at tracking that. And over 32 years of that data series, uh, the annual growth in work jobs that are typically done in an office has increased by 6% per year. So give, give that two years and the office workforce is growing 10% anyway. So yeah, um, yeah. if you take 10% out of the CBD, put it in the burbs, that's fine. Two years later, uh, there, that market has actually regrown by the uh, structural shift of the economy away from, say, um, labouring uh, towards, uh, towards knowledge work, uh, in fact. So I think, you know, it's certainly going to have a um, uh, sort of a uh, depressing impact or deleterious impact over 2020, 21, maybe into 22. But then the growth in the workforce, the office workforce, counterbalances that, uh, in fact. And, and, in fact, over the course of the pandemic, February 2020 to February 2022, the office workforce componentry of the workforce increased not by 6% a year, but, in fact, by 9% a year. We're actually adding more office kind of workers, but they've wow. just been at, been at home. A lot yeah, of them will, in yeah. fact, go back to the office in due course. So the CBD impact, you know, you feel will be a short-term blimp, uh, but the changes to the hubs, the the society and how people live in the burbs will potentially shift. And uh, we've long seen a very uh, positive correlation or or strong correlation between property values and the accessibility to transport. You know, it's around that one kilometre from a train station or the access point into the highway is is a sweet spot for property prices. That may shift. You know, it might be the local restaurant strip or the parks or walkways that that may be now the the stronger drivers of amenity? Well, I actually feel that we'll see more, um, you know, stronger suburban hubs. Now, whether it's, you know, like a Dandenong or a Box Hill or a um, uh, a Parramatta or Penrith, I'm going to have to go through all the cities now, (laughs) Mavgrabat or (laughs) Chermside or whatever, Glenorchy in Tasmania, uh, wherever. So you've you've actually got more people orientating towards their local centre rather than into the uh, into the city. Now, of course, you need uh, public transport um, uh, access to, to, to do all that. Uh, yes. But I think that you're actually creating kind of like mini-me CBDs mm. scattered throughout the metropolitan area. And so that would also apply to the inner suburbs, those hipster suburbs that you see around the CBD would kind of start to emerge around like the Parramatta's of the world or around the Box Hills of the world, you know, over a 10 or 15-year period, uh, yeah. I would suggest. You know, the old model of living on the edge of a city and commuting to the city centre and then back out again uh, just does not stack up in a post-COVID world. Imagine saying to a millennial, yeah. great news, millennial, um, after two years of working from home, you can now go back to commuting from Cranbourne or Penrith into the city centre and back out again five days a week for the next 30 years of your career, they will say, I ain't doing that. 
there is a better model. And that <laughs> model means I can get more bang for my buck by going to a regional town and committing to the city or, in fact, going just beyond the edge of the, uh, of the metropolitan area. There is another argument here, and that is that the millennials, uh, people born 1982 through to 2000, uh, actually start to push into their late 30s, early 40s over the next five years. And in that stage of the life cycle, you don't need to be in an inner city apartment. You need to have the whole family thing because you've got kids, you've got a partner, you want to work from home. Uh, so, yeah. again, I think there's a demographic driver for that traditional family kind of home that Australians develop have developed so well in suburbia and outer suburbia. It's really interesting, isn't it? And, and you're sort of touching, you, you touched on it a, a little while earlier where potentially the types of properties may shift in terms of larger, you know, Zoom rooms uh, or layouts of these floor plans. Would that, you know, that's a, a dedicated area. You know, it can't be the kid's bedroom. We've seen those videos on YouTube of people walking in with the door opening. It does need to be a contained area. Does that mean that houses potentially need to be larger or more compound-like? Well, and it very much so. In fact, um, uh, Daryl Kerrigan had uh, the pool room. Uh, <laughs> we have evolved the pool room, the, the, uh, the, the Zoom room. See that plant over there? Uh, yes. That's, that is precisely positioned there. <laughs> <laughs> for, for is it real? Or? Of no, it's a real. It's a real plan. I kill them at the rate of one every three months, apparently. Um, <laughs> but um, you're quite right. I mean, um, you know, our kids have left home, so uh, you know, there's plenty of rooms to uh, to choose from. But you know, if you've got two, three kids or so, and both partners are working, both partners working from home, hmm. uh, then it's very much you do need the Zoom room. And you know, it used to be that you used to be able to just jump on your laptop and send a few emails, you know, after after the evening meal or something like that. But if you're doing real proper business and doing Zoom calls and meetings and and what interviewing people and so forth, uh, then you need a dedicated space. And so it kind of makes sense also that if you if you increase the dwell time in the family home, so you're spending more hours in the home per week. Then, yes. in the consumer's mind, they think, "Oh well, I, I can actually invest more. Or the house can take a greater share of wallet, either yes. in the mortgage, or in the home improvement and beautification. You know, in the technology, or you know, um, if I'm here having lunch every day, you think, oh, I maybe I should, I need a new Miele oven or something like that.' Yeah. And so you get this sort of adornment and embellishment and improvement of the family home. People say, well, we can't go to um, Bali or you can't go to Bali or wherever it is, so I'm going to use that travel money and and redirect it into improving my living environment um, with, you know, better quality lifestyle home. It's interesting, isn't it? So probably just to summarise, we've got hubs, we've got focus or renewed focus on the periphery around the major capitals. Uh, and you're sort of saying out to a, a Goldilocks zone of a, around 150 kilometres. Well, that, that encapsulates it. And, you know, COVID's now almost, well, it's, it's into its second year or uh, it, it's been a while, you know, since we were, we were exposed to, to COVID-19. But we've already seen a lot of pressure and price pressure in the, the nooses of the world, the Gold Coast, even out to Toowoomba, inland of Sydney. Newcastle, Wollongong has been, you know, growing very strongly in the last couple of years. Melbourne, Bendigo's and Ballarat's were in a growth cycle anyway. Uh, they've really continued to push through and potentially prolong that growth cycle. And Geelong and the Mornington Peninsula, uh, yeah, it, 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 
we've started to see that. We have seen very strong price growth in those areas. Uh, but then when you dig into the micro and potentially the properties, you're talking about larger floor plans. And then that, uh, probably a, another really important point that you just touched on for property investors is, you know, as long as you don't want to overcapitalize potentially as an investor, you want to maximize your return. But if there is that general willingness for higher spec properties, uh, for renovated properties, you know, when you do renovate a property as an investor, then it's going to be you know, more appealing to owner occupiers and they're potentially, you know, increasing the value of your property. Uh, you know, so I think that's a really important point, Bernard, in terms of yeah, maybe the the tolerance. It's always a, a very key concern. Not overcapitalizing on a property, but maybe that buffer, that top end of that property, uh, may can you know there, there could be more emphasis up there. There could be more profit. So, yeah. Look, I I do feel that um, now this this demographic argument of the millennials moving late thirties, early forties is important. We're going to see a wave around about five and a half million millennials pass through the forty two. The, the age of 42. It's yes. a bit like an eclipse of the, you know, a lunar eclipse, the 42-year-olds passing across the face of the moon. Um, it's really important <laughs> because I say at 42, you know, around about that stage, yes. you've got one or two kids, you're partnered up, your partner's probably gone back to the workplace. And yes. at 42, you have another 23 years or thereabouts in the workplace to repay a mortgage. If there is anyone in the life cycle who needs more space because their kids are growing, it's kind of pre-teenage, it's 42-year-olds. Yeah. So if you're renovating yes. a property and gearing a property and you want to create, you want to attract the people who are prepared to pay the most, mm. then you would gear that property around a 42-year-old couple with kids um, uh, who can offer you know, multiple bedrooms and front yard, backyard, two bathrooms and so forth. That's the kind of market, I think, that is going to flourish over the next five to seven years. You can actually see the demography shifting. Wow. And yeah. uh, so, so yes, all of the uh, locations that you've identified previously, I think, would, um, would fit the bill, um, and especially where you can get good value for money um, because then coming out of an inner-city apartment, uh, you know, the, the needs have dramatically shifted, I think. There's still going to be people who will want to live that lifestyle, but uh, uh, people who are moving to the late 30s, early 40s will want something else, and they're the ascendant demographic for the next five years or so. It's really interesting because, uh, I mean, the periphery of, of Australian capitals has traditionally been, you know, where the, the, the lower price properties or the more affordable properties have been. And a renovation from an investor's perspective in those properties has been, it needs to be functional. It needs to be good value. It's a value-driven renovation, uh, you, you know, in terms of we're not putting a marble bench top in, we're putting, a, a, you know, a, a flat pack kitchen in potentially. So there is an argument there for increasing that scope for the right type of property in the periphery. You know, maybe not the two bedrooms or maybe not the small three-bedroom floor plans, but good owner-occupier appealed property in those periphery hubs, uh, there could be arguments made for a, a higher scoped renovation targeting that 42, you know, work-from-home demographic. It's interesting. Well, that's true. It's not just, and it's not just the, you know, the work-from-home, the, the whole employment argument has shifted during the pandemic. If you look at some of the fastest-growing jobs in Australia um, during the last two years, literally over the last two years, one of the fastest growing is the job of storeman or store person. It's about wow. um, something like 40,000 uh, net extra over 24 months. And that is because everyone's buying stuff online. The whole retail narrative has shifted. 
And yeah. so logistics, warehousing, distribution centres or fulfilment centres, Amazon don't mm. call their uh, warehouse yeah. <laughs> a warehouse, they call it a fulfilment centre. Um, so, <laughs> fulfilling their life. <laughs> yeah, you know, fulfilling wishes, of course. Whoever came up with that term is absolutely marketing brilliance. Transportation, yes. <laughs> distribution, warehousing, logistics centres taking spending out of shopping centres, and those things don't pop up in the city centre. They pop up on the periphery of, um, of uh, you know, the metro system or the freeway system around the edges or middle towards the edges of the capital cities. And so people then can live on the edge and go to work in these, uh, these sort of new warehouse fulfilment distribution logistics uh, centres, um, you know, good paying jobs and so forth. A lot of it is highly mechanised, of course. I certainly um, acknowledge that, but you don't have to look at the uh, the ABS figures to say, well, 40,000 jobs being created in 24 yeah. months. I mean, yeah. every one of those can take out a mortgage is the way I'm looking at it. Uh, yeah. And those mortgages will not be in the inner city. They'll be on the city fringe and, and middle areas and also perhaps in, um, you know, stronger regional centres as well. So uh, mm, when you look at that mm. narrative, you think, yeah, I can, I can build a very strong case to say it's time for outer metropolitan suburbia and the Goldilocks zone. It's your time in the sun. Well, I, I think it's now also the Australian investors' time to capitalise on that information because I think it's it's very insightful and it, and it shows you know how the, the you know society can shift and where that opportunity can potentially emerge. But you know while while we're having this discussion, Bernard, I, I, I'm I'm really interested. Obviously, we have you know, a, a very changing global uh, fabric, uh, you know, or, or a very strongly changing global fabric in 2022 with Russia and Ukraine. And obviously, it's probably outside the scope of this conversation to to discuss, you know, the specifics of, of that. But it is creating a, a refocus on defence uh, and spending around defence. Uh, and there's a lot of talk in the property investment community at the moment about Darwin, which might be re-emerging out of a slump. You know, it's looking like the, the stars are starting to align once again, and it's looking relatively bullish. And then also Townsville. A lot of investors at the moment are talking about Townsville, two areas where defence plays a key part. Um, how do you feel the focus on defence may change in the next few years? And I feel, you know, is defence spending a positive or a negative? You know, defence spending, it means that there is a, a risk factor attached to it. You know, there is the need to have a base there, you know, ongoing employment, obviously, and attracting the, the military spend there is a positive thing, but does that mean that it is also at risk? Well, I certainly do think that um, concerns at a geopolitical level uh, do create the rationale for a percentage point to be added <laughs> to uh, defence spending as a yes. proportion of our budget. I think defence is around about 2%. Uh, if it was at about 3%, you know, the full percentage point is another $20 billion um, mm. that then gets scattered across a number of locations across Australia, Labrick Barracks, of course, in uh, Townsville, Robertson Barracks in uh, in Darwin, but there's a whole range of other locations as well. Certainly on the west coast, um, with um, with Perth, various locations there, and the northern suburbs of Adelaide with defence manufacturing and defence spending, particularly submarines and so forth. That yes. would uh, that would have an impact. Um, kind of related to that is the idea that we need to be far more self sufficient in manufacturing, particularly smart and advanced manufacturing, and that we should be bringing home those manufacturing jobs or growing further jobs locally rather than offshoring them, as we have done previously. And you think, yes. well, what cities on the Australian continent have strong manufacturing heritage and skill bases? 
or that'd be Melbourne, that'd be Geelong, that'd be Ballarat, Bendigo, Adelaide, probably Bathurst. Uh, there's a number of them around uh, around the country where there is defence manufacturing and manufacturing more generally skills. Uh, even in parts of um, parts of Sydney, parts of Brisbane and so forth, I think over the longer term, uh, I think Australians are going to demand more secure supply chains. That means more uh, yeah. manufacturing locally. And that goes to the argument of um, uh, warehouses, logistics, uh, advanced manufacturing facilities. These are middle and outer suburbs. Again, this goes to my argument that that edge of the capital cities and the, the lifestyle zones just beyond uh, yes. Can actually be the um, you know the targets of uh, new spending and new skills and workers who will want to live in lifestyle areas uh, within an easy commute of those uh, of those workplaces. So, is what you're saying just to clarify? Maybe not the emphasis on the bases, uh, you know, the Darwin and the and the Toowoomba bases, but maybe the the actual manufacturing associated with defence uh, may you know cause cause the property-related impact? Oh, very much so. In fact, um, uh, there's a whole industry, of course, you know, the whole northern part of Adelaide is yes. um, is driven by defence, by space, um, uh, and there's a whole range of industries uh, that, um, that hang off a decision to increase our exposure to... Um, uh, to these sectors uh, going forward. And they're very localised and um, can be quite transformative, and especially mm. if you look at property prices on, say, the northern edge of, uh, of Adelaide or on the western side of Melbourne or, or wherever, um, let alone in, uh, in regional cities. Now, I think, um, I think Laverick Barracks uh, in Townsville had a, um, uh, had a boosting impact, certainly, you know, 20 years ago where there was concerns about terrorism and so forth. Uh, yes. So there was a sort of a, a, a bump, if you like, in defence spending, and then that sort of finds its way into uh, into the entire uh, community. Um, you know, there's a there's a logic to it uh, yeah. that I think uh, most certainly hangs together. Now, on a big picture level, I do think that you should be looking at investors and anyone in uh, Australia should be looking at the big picture drivers of the 2020s, and there'll be a, a shift in geopolitical alignment that will impact defence, defence manufacturer and so forth. Uh, the demographic shift of the millennials to their late 30s, early 40s, I think that, and then work from home. And these are very powerful mega trends that I think yeah. are going to reshape Australia away from the traditional model of, you know, like the fried egg where you have the rich creamy yolk in the inner city with all the, you know, the, the you know the, the best properties and so forth, and then sort of uh, flattening out to the edge. I think it's going to be a bit more scrambled up uh, in the um, in the twenty twenty, I'm continuing my food themes. Aren't I? I think it's good. It's, it's making me hungry, and I'll have a nice so mix up omelette for breakfast. <laughs> we'll have to. What about a burnism? <laughs> we'll oh, have what? to come up with a a burnism. <laughs> a, a burnadism, right? Well, there's plenty of those out there. <laughs> I love your turn of expression. It really does. It does put some colour behind things. And it's, uh, look, I think the insights from today and the particular application for investors has been, uh, has been excellent. And, you know, the takeaway, Australia is always changing. And, and I, you know, from, from my perspective, it's always changing. And where that change does occur, there is opportunity. And it's up to us to, to listen to, 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 to folks like yourself to understand where that opportunity might exist. And I think that's invaluable. Uh, and you know, we need to be aware of it. 
It's uh, an absolute pleasure to have you joining us today, Bernard. It really has been uh, phenomenal. And um, Do you mind if I mention to the audience how they might be able to reach out to you further? Absolutely. No, go ahead. Yes. Uh, well, Bernard is the Managing Director of the Demographics Group. Uh, who offer bespoke demographic data visualizations on global markets. And as you've seen today, they are delivered in a very engaging narrative <laughs> by experienced speakers. <laughs> but at what would probably be your primary social media channel if people were to reach out and, and say hello? My primary media channel is LinkedIn. You can follow me on uh, LinkedIn and I post uh, several times a week all my columns all of my insights, any new acronyms that I develop, <laughs> I put there. Uh, so probably LinkedIn uh, or Instagram uh, are my, uh, my preferred social media channels. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Jacob. Bye-bye.